Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. It turns out for me, having control is more important than having money. I need to feel I have a choice in everything that I'm doing. That's a real, that's the thing I can't live without. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I made you a tape of what I think are all romantic songs. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. You bought her a house. And need to talk about more. Rock and roll never dies, Thunderball. I'm Anna Sale. The day I talked to musician Liz Fair, she came into the studio right before a recording session for a new song. She told me the timing of our interview was intentional. I'm worried about the song I'm going to be recording in the studio later today, which made it perfect to come here. I could have scheduled going to the studio a different day, but I knew that I would be very stressed about the song that I'm going to record today. So we put work in today to get me distracted enough to go to the studio so I could do the song that I'm worried about. There's, it, just, it's, it sounds more complicated than it is, really. It's just that I've learned how to use my rebellious streak to my own advantage. I think that's one of the graces of aging, is that you get to know yourself well enough to make your bad habits start to work for you. (laughs) Yes, exactly. How do we turn this into a productive habit? (laughs) Liz is 52, and that kind of self-knowledge is what makes her new memoir, Horror Stories, so good. In the book, Liz writes in detail about some of the most private moments in her life, like the affair she had that ended her marriage, and years later, the pain of being cheated on by someone she loved, and the grocery shopping that helped her cope. I got to the Trader Joe's chapter, and I was like, oh, I'm just photocopying this chapter to send to my friend who's going through a divorce. (laughs) So uh, tell her I said solidarity, sister. Putting those personal stories in a book is a new thing for Liz. But in her music, she has always been frank in ways that made people love her and also made them uncomfortable. Back in her 20s, she sang about the transactional nature of relationships. Like in her song, Fuck and Run. As Liz aged, her music matured with her. After her affair and divorce, she sang about her worries about how it would all affect her son in the song Little Digger. I've done the damage, the damage is done. 
Liz never intended to be a professional musician. She studied visual art in college. Writing songs was more of a hobby. But her first album, Exile in Guyville, was an unexpected hit. It quickly sold 200,000 copies. Rolling Stone put her on its cover under the headline, A Rock and Roll Star is Born. And Liz was miserable. I felt really traumatized. (laughs) I had not expected to have the kind of reception to the record that it got. So that first year, I was just going everywhere and doing photo shoots and playing performances that I didn't feel like I was good enough to be doing. It was just a whole year of inadequacy. Hmm. (laughs) So like, I was playing catch up with my own career. Who was teaching you how to be a performer? Nobody. Isn't that funny? Nowadays, you would think if you had an artist that didn't know what they were doing, that you would, you know, put them with a band or, you know, rehearse them or do whatever it was. But we we were just, it was the 90s, you know, and I didn't have a manager. (laughs) Like, we just, it was like an archaic time in a weird way. There was this sense of run and gun, and we just did that. What was it like to do your first photo shoots once it was clear that you were becoming a celebrity? It was really hard. It's funny. It's funny. Um, I did not enjoy my first blush of fame very much. And doing photo shoots was especially difficult because it was like a portrayal. And I'd been trained as a visual artist, so I kind of understood what we were doing with these images. But they had heard the explicit lyrics in some of my songs. (laughs) They basically kept trying to undress me and do these super sexy photo shoots that didn't make any sense to me because I was stomping around in like combat boots and, you know, cargo pants and black shirts at that point. And and like how when you recognize that you were in a photo shoot that was the concept was highly sexualized and you were going to be sexualized. Did you did you have the ability to to change the concept? I didn't know that I had the ability to change the concept. If I'd had management from the beginning, I think a lot of things in my career would be different. But it was like a free-for-all. Get Liz to do this. Get Liz to do that. Get Liz to do this. Um, in terms of how they were portraying me, it was it was hard to reconcile that with what I thought I was being, which was like an observant artist and maybe a provocateur. But it seemed like America only saw one way to market that, and that was the sex side. And it was all happening fast. Liz's second album, Whip Smart, came out just a year after her first. And as the pressure of fame mounted, Liz did a 180. She married her boyfriend, an editor who had worked on one of her music videos, and she moved in with him and his teenage son in Chicago, not far from Winnetka, the affluent suburb where she grew up. It's hard to explain, but if you put out a record at 26, and you can imagine that at 27, I've just bought a house, I'm married, and, you know, in less than a year, I'll be pregnant. You know, it's, I, I, I felt like my life wasn't my own at that point. I felt like my life had taken this hard right turn, and I couldn't keep up with it. I couldn't keep up with the person everyone expected me to be. I couldn't keep up with how many people had heard the record. And I think getting married and buying a house and getting really domestic was like a way to retreat from that. Mm. And I was trying to pull back 
into a self that I recognized. And I just pulled back too far. And I put a really hard um, stop to it all. Help me understand that. Like you are, you are sort of being lauded for talking about sex in a way that women have not in music and for being honest and raw in a way women have not. And then you find that you're pulled towards becoming a wife and retreating from from that public life. Did that feel like a contradiction to you in terms of how you thought of who you were as a woman? It didn't feel like a contradiction to me at all because I'd grown up in a community where most of the women didn't work. They were wives and mothers, and that actually seemed extremely normal. That seemed refreshingly and reassuringly familiar. But what I didn't factor in was how well I would do in that role, how well a personality like mine would do in that role. I kind of just... It it was what I'd envisioned for myself and what everyone had envisioned for me in my upbringing. Hmm. And it wasn't that my husband had asked me to stay home or do something domestic. It was purely my own decision-making process. I was trying to imitate the lives that I'd grown up with. How did you first start to notice that kind of retreating into domesticity wasn't going to be a perfect fit? The long hours with, you know, the isolation and the long hours just being in a house, I think, not really knowing what to do with myself. You know, I've always made art. And what I've learned over time is that there are certain things that I have a natural attraction to, but there are some things I just don't. And fulfilling that kind of like wifely picture of domesticity in the traditional sense mm-hmm which is not something I really cared that much about. It wasn't something that was particularly, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, intriguing to me. It didn't use the parts of me that I love to exercise. Eventually, Liz's restlessness became overwhelming. In horror stories, she describes the repetitiveness of her new life, parenting a baby and isolated from her artist friends. She began a long flirtation with her manager that turned into an affair, as she describes in her audiobook. I'm calling Ethan to tell him what's happening in my day instead of saving the news for my husband. I know I've strolled too far down the wrong path, but I'm addicted to the attention. It makes all the ordinary things I have to do seem colorful and interesting when he listens to me. When you first started feeling uh, interested in another man, um, what do you remember going through your head? It wasn't so much the man that I was interested in. What I remember was the exhilaration of being with someone that saw me as a music person again. I'd done this to my own life. I had retreated from the music business, kind of put a hard stop to everything that was going on in my career. And at the worst possible time, at the height of my success, arguably. And that had felt right in the sense that I regained a sense of control over myself and my life. If you really put a hard stop to it and then there's nothing 
after all of this striving and all of these accolades and all of this excitement, you're left with that idle time. And you're left with a sense, at least I was, of who am I? Mm-hmm. And what I recall from being attracted to this man that I had the affair with was it was a way back into the life that I'd had before, the person that I'd just essentially, you know, chucked off of myself. I think that's what it was. I mean, it sounds stupid, but I was attracted to him, but I was also attracted to the life that I'd given up. I mean, what you're describing, I feel like, is every Every woman, I think, that goes through the experience of becoming a parent then has to go through this experience of, like, what parts of myself that were here before are still here. Um, Did you think you were going to be together with this person when you were falling for him? Um, no. I did not think that I was going to be together with this person. Um... I thought that I could just kind of get that excitement going again, and I didn't think that it was going to derail my life. But I also found when the actual affair started that I couldn't take the lies. I couldn't take the deceit of it. And I think some friends just said, you know, if you're not found out, don't, you know, just let it go. And I can't live like that, it turns out. When you think back on that time, do you think of it uh, with a sense of, like, this was a mistake I made or a sense of I understand why I needed that at that time in my life? I honestly think it was a huge mistake, a uh-huh. massive, massive mistake. Um, I would advise strongly and do to this day, anytime anyone is I know is having an affair or is considering it, I, I strongly advise against it. I don't advise sticking with something that isn't working. I don't advise living a lie. I wouldn't cheat on anyone ever again, not just because I hurt other people. And it's not just because it took forever to kind of settle like how I blew my life up, you know? Um, I would never cheat again because it actually, you harm yourself. It's self-destructive behavior. And that's what I object to strongly. When your marriage was over and you were learning how to be a single mom, did it feel like there was more room for your artist self? Oh, gosh, there was. You know, not to put too fine a point on it, but yes, it was it was a relief to be able to be to know who I was, know that art was going to be important to me forever and I couldn't live without it. That's what I couldn't live without. Coming up, Liz leaves Chicago and she meets someone new. I could tell that there was something that was a little off-kilter about that. I just couldn't put my finger on it and I certainly didn't know how devastating a relationship that was going to end up being. Speaking of infidelity, you all had some reactions to our episode about cheating that we re-released a few weeks ago, and you had more cheating stories to share. 
Some of them are happening right now. Last night, I found myself under a married man in a hotel room in a foreign country. A listener named Stella wrote in. I know he has a wife and a son thousands of miles away. We also heard stories about how cheating affects those people. My father, I always thought, was a very moral person. He was my everything. A listener named Elizabeth was an adult when she found out her dad was cheating on her mom. I feel like my dad cheated on me, too, in a way. How am I ever supposed to trust him again? We shared a lot of other reactions to this episode in our newsletter last week. Some really good conversations happened there. So if you don't subscribe already, make an early New Year's resolution and add it to your list. Get it at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. On the next episode, we're doing something different. A death, sex, and money year-end spectacular. Get ready. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Liz Fair's marriage broke up, she moved with their young kid, Nick, to California. And she jumped back into making music. In 2003, she hit the top 40 charts for the first time with her pop single, Why Can't I? When you were thinking about what you wanted and what you wanted your life to look like after going through the divorce um, and thinking about what you wanted professionally, what you wanted in your personal life, um, what do you remember picturing? I pictured having it all. I pictured being um, a recording artist who toured occasionally and having a family. I mean, I going all the way, you know, keep rolling it forward till it's on Golden Pond. You know, like, mm-hmm. like I fully still have that vision for myself. If someone says, like, what do you picture? You know, I picture in my fantasy life being like that older woman in a cardigan set who has the house on the lake that the family always comes to every year. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like that would be that if I could spend hours thinking about that for a while, like if I let myself... When Liz was in her late 30s, things seemed to be falling into place. She went on a blind date with a single dad of two daughters, and they got serious. But then 
After years of dating, he told her that he'd been cheating on her and that he had a new baby with another woman. I was trying really hard to stay sober and not drink every night. And I could not handle the emotions that I was feeling. I felt like I had no skin. I felt like a raw nerve. And anything anyone said to me felt like an accusation or pity. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was separated from everyone by like a thin wall of grief in a real weird way. And I kept being invited out because friends were trying to keep me busy. And they saw, they'd never seen me like that before. They'd never seen me devastated and incapacitated. Um, so everyone was asking me out and I went and I just kept going out and doing the things, but I would sit there emotionally totally removed. And I just waited for the hours and days to pass. Was it hard to be in that space when you're a, a someone who's an, a known person, you're a public person? Like, how do you, where, where can you, where can you go? Where can you hide? Yeah. Um, luckily at that point I was, uh, I was staying at home. I wasn't doing my career particularly. I was composing for television. I was doing whatever I could to stay home with my son while he was in junior high and high school. So I, I didn't have to be Liz Fair at that point most of the time. I can imagine in a weird way that it would have been easier if I had to be because I could have just slipped into that persona and put it on autopilot without having to just sit and feel all my emotions and think all my thoughts. It was, it was, <laughs> I think it was the bookend to my affair. I really do think that. Hmm. Did being a person who was betrayed in a relationship make you think about the end of your marriage in a different way? I think I knew that after I got divorced. Like, I knew that pretty early on. It was not lost on me, even even before I'd stopped seeing the man I had an affair with. It was not lost on me the amount of damage that it had done to just everyone involved. What happened when I was betrayed was this sense of... I started to tell myself the narrative that I didn't deserve. I wasn't ever going to be happy. I wasn't ever going to find, you know, because I'd done things in my past, I didn't deserve to have. And I think I'm still working through that. Hmm. Like you're being punished? or Yeah. I've been punishing myself for an incredibly long time over that. And I really should just stop. It's really stupid. I kind of felt like it was collective settling of a score. I felt, in a way, a tiny sense of gratitude and relief. I sort of factored it in as like a small state of grace to kind of pay for what I'd done. Mm. So as awful as that was, and I'm, I'm not putting a silver lining on it because there is none, but that settled a score to me. That was bad enough that I felt like I'd paid for what I'd done. What was it like beginning to date? Stupid and awful, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's still stupid and awful. Like, it's never anything but stupid and awful in the dating world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have a really tough time conveying, I feel like, and I said this to my friend 
after another romantic attempt, like sort of didn't work out. Either people meet the me that I was when I was nine, just a sort of a normal person, and then and that feels really good because then I know they really like me, mm. and then they have to encounter the Liz Fair thing, mm-hmm. which I don't have total control over. You know, I can't really shape that narrative. That's a cultural narrative. And then they have trouble grappling with that because they thought they just met this nice suburban girl, right? Or they meet me as Liz Fair and they think all these, you know, oh, we're going to be a power couple and it's going to be amazing. We're going to do all these sexy, cool, exciting, glamorous things. And then it's like the normal me that's just at home making popcorn and watching like period romance movies. And and they don't want that. So like it's really hard to find someone that can hang in the rock world and also go home to Winnetka. And I don't want to take my foot out of either state. I'm straddling several states, and it's very hard for me to find someone that can see that and understand it. Liz is single now. She says she and her ex have a good co-parenting relationship. Their son Nick just graduated from college, which has prompted Liz to think about her own next moves. He's launching his own self. I feel in a parallel way, I'm relaunching my own self as an artist. And there was just a a section of my brain that belonged to my son for 22 years. There was just the section that was off, that was inaccessible to anything else. And it took up a lot of space. And Liz is still very close with her parents. They just sold their Winnetka home this year. And Liz says that was hard. I have never not gone home. So I've every year I've been home in Chicago at their house four, five times a year. You know, like it's it was it's never not been a part of my life. So when we knew that this was coming, I don't th- and I think my mother understands this. You know, I did a lot of helping clean out closets and do all that kind of stuff. But as it got closer, I became more and more withdrawn from it. I sort of relished in all the views from all the windows and remembrances. I'd done all that over a long period of time. But I have trouble with transitions Hmm. traditionally. And I think there was a sense that I almost couldn't look that last month or two at what was happening. You have trouble with transitions. Just tell me a little bit more about that. I'm, I have like a blind spot sometimes for what is required to make a transition. I point my GPS toward a goal and then whatever I have to go through to get to that goal is always a surprise to me. (laughs) So... I'm looking really far down the road most of the time, or I'm looking at a very granular close-up. I have trouble with this, the middle ground. And that's true in my art, too. I like high contrast. I am very comfortable at the extremes on either side. I have trouble with the middle area. There's like this sort of murky, can't-quite-figure-it-out sense of uh, formlessness. I just I go toward the distant goal and then deal with whatever comes up. 
mean, you did talk about golden ponding. I'm so ready for that. I can smell the cardboard of the board games right now. I can hear the waves lapping it like the old tin rowboat, you know, whatever it is. I fully, that's that's the problem. If you want to know my problem in a nutshell, I have too much imagination and not enough organization. Hmm. So it makes me dangerously able to wing things really, really well. That's Liz Fair. Her memoir is called Horror Stories. In 2020, she's got an album of new music coming, and she's heading out on tour with Alanis Morissette and Garbage. Oh, and that Trader Joe's chapter from Liz's book that I mentioned at the top of this episode, I won't spoil it, but it's really good. And you can read it on our website at deathsexmoney.org. Thanks to Random House for letting us share that excerpt with you, along with that clip from the audiobook. And in our show notes, there is a link to a Spotify playlist that we made of our favorite Liz Fair songs. Enjoy. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affie Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Have a wonderful time in the studio this afternoon. I'm excited to hear how the song oh, turns God. out. That was really mean. You just totally like oh. snapped me back to attention. It's like, oh, damn it. Okay. <laughs> you know how like at the end of a massage, they press the top oh, of your head God. down and you're like, why are you putting me back in my box? I don't want to go back in my box. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.